0: Blaze Radio Network. And now, the Rabbi Daniel Lapin show. The more the world changes, the more we find comfort in the things that never change. This is Rabbi Daniel Lapin, on demand, on the Blaze Radio Network. Greetings, happy warriors, and welcome to the Rabbi Daniel Lapin show, where I, your rabbi, will reveal how the world Really works. Thanks for being part of the show and thanks for everything you do to help promote and spread the word of the show. I very much appreciate that. And uh, this is a show, as you already well know, this is a show that is not for the creeps and crooks and clowns and cranks of the world. No! This is the show for the men and women who want to live their best lives now by constantly growing their finances, their families, their friendships, their faith, and their fitness. And um, since family, as I've explained, is at essence the result of male-female interaction, right? That's what creates family. And when you are at a family get-together and you feel the warm surge of camaraderie and closeness that you feel by being together with aunts and uncles and siblings and cousins and nieces and nephews, spare a thought just for a moment, to the fact that the only reason that you are basking in the bosom of your family right now is because many years ago, grandpa and grandma's eyes met and they formed a bond and found ecstasy in one another's arms. And the result of that, your uncles and aunts, your siblings, your cousins, that's right, that's where it all came from. So let's take a moment to take a look at a book. Gosh, almost everybody reads this book in high school, don't they? High school or during your, I mean, basically before you turn 20, almost everybody has read Atlas Shrugged by Ayn Rand. And, uh, and if you haven't, you know, it's a long, big book, and I'm reluctant to pledge your time on anything, even Atlas Shrugged, Um, you know, it's not, it's not the Bible. It's not, you know, it's not perfect. It's not an absolute 100% must read. But if, uh, if you spend a couple of hours a week looking at videos or movies or other entertainment on your screen, why don't you take a few weeks off the screen and read Atlas Shrugged? And if you do, you will come across uh, this passage. Observe the ugly mess which most men made it make of their sex lives and observe the mess of contradictions which they hold as their moral philosophy. One proceeds from the other. Love is our response to our highest values and can be nothing else. Let a man corrupt his values and his view of existence, and he will have cut himself in two. His body will not obey him. It will not respond. Some people, and here's, here's what Ayn Rand says, some people think that sex is a physical capacity which functions independently of one's mind Choice or code of values. A man's sexual choice is the result and the sum of his fundamental convictions. Show me the woman he sleeps with, and I will tell you his valuation of himself. He will always be attracted to the woman who reflects his deepest vision of himself, the woman whose surrender permits him to experience or to fake self-esteem. The man who is proudly certain of his own value will want the highest type of woman he can find, the woman he admires, the strongest, the hardest to conquer, because only the possession of a heroine will give him a sense of achievement, not the possession of a brainless slut. There is no conflict between the standards of his mind and the desire of his body. Love is our response to our highest value and can be nothing else. That's, you know, stuff we're thinking about, isn't it? And so today I thought what we need to learn a little bit about is choosing a wife. Now, why do I say choosing a wife and not choosing a spouse? Well, because even after 60 or 70 years of the feminist revolution, after well over half a century of the sexual revolution, wouldn't you have thought that by now? Half the marriages you hear about would come to pass because a man got down on one knee and held out a diamond ring to a woman and said, please accept this ring and marry me and make me the happiest man in the universe or some other such superlative. Uh, But the other half of marriages should come about Because a woman got down on one knee and held out a Rolex watch to a man and said, please accept this watch and become my husband and make me the happiest girl in the universe. But you know as well as I do that that doesn't happen. Oh, there are one or two cases. I remember while I was still doing terrestrial radio before the podcast days, I was discussing this point and uh, a woman called in and said, I don't agree with you. I proposed to my husband and we got married. And uh, s- something spurred me to ask her, and are you still married? Long silence. No, we got divorced. But it had nothing to do. Uh, never mind. Don't tell me what it had to do with and what it didn't have to do with. That's not relevant to the conversation. Uh, there is something that uh, is slightly off in a case of a woman proposing to that. Could there be happy marriages out there where the woman proposed? Sure. There are always exceptions. Absolutely. But not significant numbers. Statistically insignificant. It is safe to say that the overwhelming majority of marriages come about because a man proposed marriage to a woman. Now, it's interesting that in ancient Jewish wisdom this principle is laid out in the very language of the Bible, the Lord's language, the language of Hebrew. Listen to this. You know whether whether you like the Bible or you don't, whether you know it or you don't, whether you it doesn't matter, but this you will find interesting that in this ancient language which the second governor of the Plymouth colony uh, described in his 17th century diary and he said the language in which god spoke to the patriarchs of old that was one of the founders of the united states of america well it was uh, was well before the united states it was in the 1600s but uh, he did come over on the mayflower so uh, uh, the the uh, the idea of of hebrew listen to this beautiful in Hebrew, the word for a young man is Bachur. Now, the general word, the general rule in Hebrew for converting a uh, masculine noun to a feminine noun is you put an A ah sound at the end. And so, uh, for instance, a uh, ish is a man, isha is a woman. Yaled is a boy. Yalda is a girl. Bachur is a young man. And if you uh, visit Israel and uh, you, you listen to people saying and talking, you'll hear somebody might say, where is the young woman? Because if Bachur is a young man, a general rule in the Lord's language is a suffix of "ah" turns it into a feminine noun. "Bachur" is obviously a masculine noun, a young man. "Bachura," a young woman. Here's the funny thing: this is a word used only in modern Hebrew, in in Israel today, but in Scripture whereas you will find plenty references and plenty usages of the word Bachur, young man, or Bachurim, plural, many young men, what you will not find even once is the word Bachura as a young woman. It doesn't exist. And um, what this tells us is something very significant, which is that this particular usage for a young person is appropriate for a male but not appropriate for a female how could this be why would it be allow me to enjoy sharing with you let me disclose the the answer here it is the word bahur actually means choose and so we get the idea that a young man and when we use that word bahur we're not saying a little boy or we're not talking about a, a, a young boy who's just had his bar mitzvah at the age of 13. No, we're talking about older than that. And so it makes perfect sense that the essence of young masculinity in the upper teen years is choice, Bahur, choice. He gets to choose a girl. That's the essence of what we're talking about. And the central feature of a young man's life from the upper teen years into the early 20s is it's time to make a very big choice. Choosing the woman you are going to live with. That's what it means. So why can't a woman choose? Well, because she doesn't. In reality, women basically in a sense, have an easier way of it, right? Men go through these agonies of doubt and decision. Should they ask her to marry? Shouldn't they? A woman really only has to decide yes or no. A woman gets a proposal of marriage. She only gets to choose yes or no. But it's very hard for her to go out and choose a man that is very tough. And the only way that works, and it works that way in many parts of the Jewish community, and that is where uh, a woman might talk to her parents and say, you know, uh, I've been noticing this young man, Jack, who uh, I've seen him at the synagogue, and uh, he's, uh, he's sometimes been a friend of my brother, so I've sort of seen him around. And I, I'm interested. I, I'd like to know whether uh, he would be interested in, in me. And the parents might, in fact, go to a third party, somebody who knows Jack, and uh, the person would go to Jack and say, hey, listen, there's a girl I think you should meet. And so in that sense, through uh, using connections and, uh, and to attempting to do it in that fashion a girl might in fact be able to effectively choose a boy but that doesn't mean he's going to go along with it but with a boy choosing is an act he does and yes he might be turned down that is true but he is choosing and if a boy is turned down does this mean it's the end of his life? And I know that in, instinctively you're going to say, no, of course its not it doesn't mean that. But um, how, how do we explain to a young man who's just been turned down by the woman he has chosen to be the woman he wants to spend his life with and she's just turned him down? Is this the end of his life? Well, we have to explain that and we have to talk about that. And part of the things that uh, that we talk about is that, you know, it's it, the the thing that's going through a young man, a Bahur's mind, and the girl he chooses is settling down, building a home, starting a family, building a future. that's that's what's happening. And for that to be able to occur, there needs to be an overall atmosphere of security and tranquility, which is why in, uh, in, in times of tremendous stress, whether military or economic, uh, it's very difficult to get married because nobody has a clear sense of what the future holds. And um, for that reason, I became very interested a number of years back in the section of Genesis having to do with the story of Noah's flood, right? Genesis chapter 5, 6, 7, 8, that that section of Genesis. Uh, And I became interested in it because I knew from the teachings I'd got from my father, I knew that this wasn't merely a mythological story about a great flood But in reality, it was a description of how you and your family can endure even when the world is going crazy around you. And so I created a video program. It's a two-hour lecture on video in which even with no Hebrew background, even if you know no Hebrew at all, but through showing you things like I've just shown you about the word bahur and bahura, you'll discover that there are no superfluous words in the original God-given Hebrew Bible. I'll tell you that among other revelations, I'm going to give you not only a lecture, a video teaching, but also I'm going to give you graphics, a lot of graphics, that clearly show how this story of Noah and the understanding of the Hebrew essence changes the entire meaning of a verse. I show you how even things like different Hebrew names used for God, and even though in the English translation, it just says God for each one. Sometimes it says Lord, sometimes it says God, But who would have thought that there's a major difference? Well, that's what you're going to see. In fact, these different names for God serve as divine clues to help us understand what is really happening to society around us and what we can and should do in response to defend and protect our own lives. I'm going to tell you this, even if you cannot read or comprehend a single word of Hebrew, I am going to guide you through this part of Genesis with ease and even enjoyment. We'll have a lot of fun along the way, that I can tell you. You're going to gain insight into human behavior that will allow you to ensure that your faith, your family, and your finances thrive no matter how stormy it gets outside. I'll go further than that. I'll say that this teaching, I intended to equip you with everything you need, not just to allow you and your family to survive, but actually to thrive. I mean, I start even with the verses that list the 10 generations between Adam and Noah. You remember those? And and so-and-so begat this one, and this one begat that one. You know what? Those verses are frequently skipped over. And um, going on from there through the story of Noah's building of the ark, honestly, you're going to be amazed to discover practical life lessons leaping off the pages of scripture for you lessons that you can apply immediately and you're going to see in you know especially if you've if, if you've often thought about the fact that maybe you need to know a little bit more about the bible this is a perfect trampoline this is a place to jump off from and um and, and you will see for yourself, this is not me lecturing, this is me pointing out things that you can see for yourself, that the Bible is not a history book, but it's a guide to living our best lives today. There are secrets that are embedded in the original Hebrew that I will show you how to unpack, secrets that could change your life. Basically, what I'm saying is the lessons in these Hebrew chapters are on how to build your own ark and protect your family in today's terribly turbulent times. Have you ever heard about the Nephilim and you've heard that Nephilim are strange forces? Well, don't worry about it. I am going to disclose to you exactly what the word nephilim actually means. You're going to be shocked how relevant it is. You're going to discover that the nephilim could really come off today's headlines. In fact, given some of today's headlines today about gender and about abortion and the growing fury surrounding the abortion debate... Wouldn't you like to know exactly how this began and how the entire story that set in motion the events of Noah's Ark has a lot to do with abortion? It has a lot to do with, yes, sex. You might have noticed, those of you who have looked at the Bible, there's a character called Lemech about whom we seem to be told more than we actually ever need or more than we're even interested in. What's Lemech doing there? Well, we're going to cover that as well. So uh, go to the website, com and uh, go ahead and get yourself the gathering storm, decoding the secrets of Noah, the video, the new release. You, you're going you're gonna to be astounded. And as I say, if you're looking for a way to jump into a more serious understanding of the role the Bible has played and is playing right now. I don't know if you read, but uh, a uh, congresswoman uh, was caught on video recently. It uh, turns out that there are a few Bibles in a members-only sort of reading room there's a quiet room in which uh, members of the congress uh, are able to go in and read and this um, democratic member of the congress she was caught on camera uh, taking away the bibles she didn't want her colleagues to be able to access the bible isn't that weird i mean really in in the 21st century Should anybody care whether somebody else reads a 3,000-year-old document? Really? Yes. If it was the Bible, then she does care. And why? Well, a lot of that will become clearer to you after you have enjoyed the gathering storm, decoding the secrets of Noah, that I have prepared in video form for your enjoyment and really to open up an understanding of Bible teaching for you. I'd love to hear what you think of it. Uh, So far, I'm getting a wonderful response, and that makes me feel good because uh, I think it'll become evident to you as you watch this. It'll become evident to you how much energy and how much work Susan Lappin and I put in to bringing you the gathering storm, decoding the secrets of Noah. Yeah, it's for real. So um, I'm talking about the building of a family, all of which starts with selecting a wife. I'm not saying choosing a spouse because this isn't about how a woman should choose a husband. That's a completely different discussion and I have done a show on that. You can go back to an earlier date and find that show. But today we're talking about choosing a wife oh come on rabbi lapin we're living in modern times you sound so antiquated this isn't 1950 and what's more you got a problem you're a bit sexist okay so um people will sometimes say when i i teach on this material you know come on i mean is is this stuff still relevant today Um, men and women, separate roles. That's so 1950-ish. Today, everything is different. Stop being a sexist. And here is the response to that. My response to that is that whereas there are certainly many things that do change, mostly in the technological arena, Uh, I'm able to be speaking to you now at this very moment, In a way, that simply wasn't possible a hundred years ago. Yes, you are going to be able to watch my video. You can download it right now of the gathering storm decoding the secrets of Noah. That entire notion was unknown 40 years ago. It's remarkable. These are huge changes that take place. But my dear happy warriors, there are certain things that don't change. Well, what about evolution? I mean, don't you think people are evolving? Well, how about if we um, don't go there for the moment? Maybe I'm not going to tell you right now whether or not I believe that human beings are evolving because the answer is a little complicated. It's yes and no. And so it would take me in a direction that uh, would be off topic for now. But one thing we can all agree on is evolution doesn't happen in decades. It doesn't even happen in centuries. So even if you are sure that now that things are so different, after all, women can earn just as much money as men, and uh, while women uh, used to enjoy having a man pay for the date Today, men will enjoy a woman paying for the day just as much. And um, my answer, as I said, is that for now, uh, one thing we can agree on is that evolution doesn't take place in days, weeks, months, or years. Doesn't take place in decades. Doesn't even take place in centuries. Doesn't even take place in millennia. And so the notion that the fundamental nature of masculinity and the fundamental nature of femininity are undergoing significant change. No, that's not happening. And um, the, uh, the, there are just lots of proofs of it. One of them is that uh, in spite of more than half a century of um, active and aggressive indoctrination of men and women into feminist theology, um, the fact is, That marriages still happen because a man proposes to a woman and not the other way around. And the fact is that, um, oddly enough, that um, men whose wives out earn them have a much higher rate of use of Viagra than the general male population. Um, this is uh, a study from the University of Washington, as well as in collaboration with a university in Denmark, and the study was published in the Personality and Social, the Personality and Social Psychology Bulletin. Uh, so uh, the authors studied data of 200,000 married couples, and. Um, and they noted that the, inform- the, the results could be even worse in the United States, where there is a longer tradition than Denmark of husbands being a family's breadwinner. But the point of the study is that as soon as wives began out-earning their husbands, drugs began to be needed for uh, normal uh, intimacy and... Um, experiences within that marriage. Now, again, if, uh, if evolution is changing, if, if I'm being a sexist, and if time's are not the 1950s any longer, well, that shouldn't be happening. It really shouldn't. It should make absolutely no difference if husbands earn more than wives or wives earn more than husbands. But it does make a difference. And when wives out-earn husbands, one of the things that happen is what I just told you, drug usage, and the other thing that happens is that uh, the marriage is actually imperiled. Divorce is significantly more likely when wives out-earn husbands because money means something quite different to a man than it does to a woman. Oh, I mean, I understand, yes, having a credit card, and being able to shop on a superficial level, absolutely. But making money goes to the very core of a man's masculinity. Making money does not go to the very core of a woman's femininity. Well, who says, Rabbi Lappin, who says? Well, I'll tell you who says. Who says is that uh, whenever there has been an economic downturn, as there have been um, during the 70s and 80s and 90s in various parts of the United States, when steel started leaving Pittsburgh, when manufacturing started leaving the Northeast, uh, when furniture manufacturing started moving away from areas in which it had been a mainstay of the of the labor force, um, one of the things we found is that there's major incidents of male dysfunction in that uh, most sensitive of all areas, the area of intimacy. When women lose jobs or when women have financial setbacks, it's awkward, it's painful, it's horrible, um, bad experience, it doesn't make them feel less of a woman, never does. When men go through periods of financial stress, very much. A result, a very much a consequence, is uh, a, 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 a loss of sense of masculinity. What is the very first question that a doctor asks a man who comes in uh, complaining of uh, erectile dysfunction? A man saying he's having trouble maintaining physical relations. The very first question the doctor says is, "Have you been going through any financial stress?" obviously, because money means something different to men than it does to women. So, uh, choosing a wife, when a man chooses a wife, obviously, this is a very big, important thing. And, uh, And so, I'm going to be explaining things that might easily stimulate somebody to say, whoa, we're living in modern times. Why are you sounding so ancient? You're sounding sexist. Of course I'm sexist. There is no more basic polarity impacting the human being than masculinity and femininity. Uh, If I'm a sexist for saying that, anybody who denies it is a moron. (laughs) It's it's unbelievable. It's literally unbelievable, even though I know there are people who do. Um, So, One of the phrases that I hear from marriage uh, counselors, dating coaches, relationship coaches, and um, I'm going to be quoting a lot of their material today just because you do need to become aware of, uh, of how mistaken so much of it is. But again, as you know, I never ask you to take what I tell you on faith. I tell you things, and then i ask you to subject it to real-world testing. One of the phrases is, what a huge gamble it is to choose a life partner. It's like this massive gamble. Everything in your life, in the future, how happy you'll be, and what you do in your family. All of this depends on who you choose. Okay, and I'm going to debunk that myth. People say that one of the reasons that uh, men find it difficult to make that step into marriage is because they become intimidated by thinking about how overwhelmingly important it is to pick the right life partner. Um, it's, It's so intense when you internalize the reality the magnitude of of what's happening, you choosing the person with whom you're going to spend the next 40, 50, 60 years. And right, everyone who gets married assumes that their marriage is going to last forever. So um, since I think everybody would agree that this is one of the most important things in life to get right, I mean, A man's got to get this right. How is it possible that so many smart, logical men end up choosing a life partner who leaves them feeling dissatisfied and unhappy? How does that happen? Well, all of that is going to be explained in the remaining few minutes that we have together in today's show, and here is uh, something that uh, men are told all the time, right? You must get married before you're too old, and too old varies, you know, from twenty-five to thirty-five. I mean, if you're not married when you're forty, eh, you know what? That's that's a little bit late. Um, but and and here is again something that dating coaches and relationship coaches tell you but uh, whatever you do don't marry the wrong person so very important to get married on time okay and this isn't me talking your rabbi doesn't speak like this I'm I'm quoting relationship coaches very important to get married before you're too old but whatever you do you mustn't marry the wrong person I mean what's worse a 37-year-old single person or an unhappily married 37-year-old with two children? Well, obviously, you're much better off, this is not me talking, remember, I'm quoting a relationship coach. Obviously, you're much better off being a 37-year-old single than being an unhappily married 37-year-old with two children because the 37-year-old single person is only one step away from a happy marriage. But the 37-year-old unhappily married with children has to either settle for permanent unhappiness or endure a messy divorce just to catch up to where the single person is. My friends, you happy warriors, please tell me what was wrong. What is the huge lie in the paragraph I just read to you? Let me read this part again, and I'll try and emphasize where the flaw is, where the problem is. Here it is, okay. Um, Surely, a 37-year-old single person is much better off than an unhappily married 37-year-old with two children because the 37-year-old single is only one step away from a happy marriage. But the 37-year-old unhappily married person He's either got to settle for permanent unhappiness or endure a messy divorce just to catch up to where the single person was. I'm sure you catch the fallacy here. And, and what's so disturbing to me at any rate is that this kind of thing is promulgated to large numbers of young single people. They, they, they are told this by all the, I shouldn't say all, but a huge number of these people who re, who operate as relationship coaches, so many of them are telling people this kind of thing. Let me tell you what the fallacy is, although I'm sure that most of you have already got it. A, an un, a, a 37-year-old single person, um, most women or most, uh, uh, certainly most thoughtful women would have serious questions about dating a 37-year-old single man. And rightly so, because they're going to say, why is he still single at 37? As a matter of fact, if they do date, and as they begin to develop some familiarity with one another, I can tell you one of the very first questions that she is going to ask him or want to ask him or want to ask somebody is, why are you still single at 37? Like, what's wrong with you? And I've got to tell you, in the Jewish community, um, in the Orthodox Jewish community, it's much younger than that, much younger. Um, I got married in my early 30s, and uh, when I was dating, I was 26, 27, 28. I can tell you that very quickly— young women would say to me look i'm i'm really i'm sorry i i don't mean to embarrass you but but you know we're 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 not just dating for fun we're dating to see if we're compatible and i have to ask you how come you're 28 and not married and uh i i'd have to say well um <laughs> I, well i'm i'm not going to tell you what i said right now um it's, but it's a legitimate question. And I, I, I always say, look, you, you're asking a very legitimate question. Some of it has to do with the fact that I immigrated to a new country when I was 26. And for the preceding couple of years, I knew I was going to be leaving where I was living. And so it was difficult for me to seriously date a prospective wife where I'd have to say to her, I'm not staying in this country. And she'd say, "Well, where are you going? I'm not sure. I'm, I'm thinking of going to the United States of America, but I'm not sure." A girl can't make a serious commitment to a guy who doesn't know where he's going to be living. Now it's after you married. There are reasons you pick up and you move. Fine, but you're dating somebody in in, and he's you know he's a 24 year old guy, 25 year old guy, and he has no idea. <laughs> it doesn't work. And then 26. I immigrate. I said I wasn't going to tell you my my explanation and here I'm telling you. Uh, well, I hope I'm, I hope I'm not boring you with that anyway. but at any rate, the, you know, so I arrive in a new country at the age of twenty six. Um, i I can't just get married right away because I have to establish myself to some extent because I want to get the highest quality woman I can possibly reach to and and to do that. I've got to achieve something first, and I can't say, "Well, I did achieve something," you know, seven thousand miles away in another country. That doesn't work, and so, uh, so you know, here I am, late twenties, and um, only now do I feel ready to start. You know, for many of them, um, the explanation wasn't good enough. I, you know, I, I get it. I, I really do, and so, uh, uh, so. This 37-year-old single, no, he's not better off. Um, Many, many women would rather date a 37-year-old divorced guy than a 37-year-old never married guy. And you guys, if you don't believe me, just ask a few women of your acquaintance that if circumstances were such that they were going to marry a 37-year-old guy, would they rather a 37-year-old never married or a 37-year-old divorced. And I think you will discover something that that I've discovered, which is that a majority of women would feel more comfortable with a divorced 37-year-old man than a single 37-year-old man. But the major fallacy, the huge lie, is something even worse. And they say because the 37-year-old married guy has to settle for permanent unhappiness or he's got to go through a divorce. Wait a second. I want to tell you something that I have experienced not with one couple, not with 10 couples, but with probably uh, between 20 and 30 couples in my experience. And that is that if you do not divorce when things are going rough, And you're feeling that, oh, this is over, this is a terrible marriage, but you stick with it. Ten years later, and I've had so many couples come to me thanking me, some of them bearing gifts, thanking me for working with them to stop them from getting divorced because they're happy. You see, we're not animals, we're human beings animals are in a static condition. What an animal is today, it'll be tomorrow, a day older, but it's still the same. With human beings, that isn't the case. You know, you can be uh, uh, an ordinary guy today, and in a year's time, you could turn out to be a really good piano player, If you devoted yourself during the year to learn a piano, you're a totally different person. Your social life changed. Your career changed by virtue of you learning to become a really good piano player. Human beings change. We grow, we develop. We're not the same. You know, nobody, would you like to be judged on who you were 15, 10, five years ago? No, because you've grown, you've progressed in your five Fs, your family, your faith, your friendships, your fitness, your finances. Yes, you've grown, you've changed. It's very, very significant. And so the idea that this 37-year-old unhappily married person is condemned to a lifetime of an unhappy marriage is rubbish. The couple may need help, but they, they can get over that. And that's the really important thing to understand. This is an incredible fallacy that just because you're going through a horrible patch and you really don't like your wife or your husband and uh, and you think to yourself, what a horrible mistake this was, I've got to get out of it. If at that time you remember the commitment, if at that time you remember the promise and you say, well, I'm going to stick with it. And usually what I help couples do is uh, let's let's just let's not move on this today let's you know what it's the rest of your life you're talking about six months isn't a ridiculous amount of time i know it's going to feel like torture i know your instinct is to tell me there's no way i can live with him for six more months but just do that because you will have a different perspective than you have today and um And and this is really, really important. If you know a couple that is on the verge of divorce, now sometimes if it's gone too far, it may be very difficult to slow the process and reverse it. But um, this is really important. Just because there's an unhappy marriage today doesn't mean it's going to be unhappy in a year's time and in five years and in 10 years. And my experience, as I say, with dozens of couples is that they persevered they stuck with it, they saw it through, and now they are so happy and they know that the odds of them being as happy had they got divorced back then are not very good. So um, let's try and understand. Try and understand what's really going on here. Human biology evolved a long time ago. This is, by the way, whenever you hear people saying human biology evolved, you've got to be very careful because you know that what's coming is going to be destructive. Human biology evolved a long time ago and doesn't understand the concept of having a deep connection with a life partner for 50 years. In other words, we shouldn't expect enduring marriages today because when the concept of mating evolved, it was for People didn't live as long. The life expectancy was short. And so marriage was designed for a 20-year, 25-year duration. But nowadays, we should just, in other words, this is legitimizing serial marriages. This is legitimizing marriage, divorce, marriage, divorce, marriage, divorce. Yeah. Because our evolution is, okay, well, I don't think I have to tell you about that. Uh, Here's another thing I've heard them uh, say. Um, so the woman's got a ticking clock and she's 35 and 36 and she's wondering about having children, she wants to get married. Listen, I'd rather adopt children with a right partner than have biological children with a wrong one. I'm not denigrating adopt- adoption of children, but um, I'm even going to go further than that. I'm going to say that I fully recognize the boundless love and goodness that is bestowed upon a child by parents who adopt that child it's incredible it's blessing it's wonderful but it's not your child it just isn't in in plain english there is a difference between your own biological children and adopted children it's a difference not saying that one shouldn't adopt, obviously, you, you, you can hear I'm not saying that, but um, when people tell, when, oh, there's no rush to get married, this is what I'm, I'm hearing, women being told, women late 20s, early, no rush to get married, well, um, you know I want, I want to have children, oh, you can always adopt children, but that way at least wait till you got the right match, you marry the right person, and then you'll adopt, that's fine, it makes no difference, yeah, it actually does make a difference. These are, are wrongheaded things that people are told today. Um, I was very intrigued by uh, um, something that was written by the German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche. Uh, you know, Nietzsche gets quoted all the time. He's, uh, God is dead, and so on and so forth, all kinds of things Nietzsche's on about, uh, Nietzsche also had a lot to say about Jews, which, which is I found very interesting, but um, Nietzsche also wrote about marriage and and some of these things are, are interesting. I, I mean I know you want to hear what I'm going to say, not what Nietzsche's going to say, but this is interesting, and I'll be able to um, bounce off it. But um, Nietzsche said that uh, if people are going to make a good go of marriage romantic feelings and sexual attraction alone won't suffice. The relationship has to be built on a foundation of strong friendship. It is not a lack of love, but a lack of friendship that makes unhappy marriages. Interesting. Uh, He also said, the best friend will probably acquire the best wife because a good marriage is founded on the talent for friendship. And so, all right, something something to be said for that. Um, if the uh, the woman you are thinking of choosing doesn't have any friends, that would be a little bit of a, a warning sign. And vice versa, by the way. Even more importantly, if a, uh, a man wants to date a young lady, or even ultimately marry a young lady, but by then you'd think she'd already have found this out. And she discovers he's barely got any friends. Big, big, big red flag. Stay away. So um, um, let me say something else. Um, One of the things you are going to do with your wife for more of the time than anything else, is have a conversation. In a way, you could say that marriage is one long conversation. And um, and let me go back to Nietzsche here, who says, "How many married men who have experienced the morning when it has dawned on them that their young wife is tedious?" <laughs> um, I should point out that Nietzsche himself was never married, and so um, taking marriage advice from a man who was never married, eh, you can be a little bit questioning. Um, it's like uh, somebody I know came to uh, came to me for marital help, and um, they themselves. Uh, they were going, their marriage was going through trouble. And I couldn't, I, I couldn't believe what they were doing. And I said, why are you doing that? And he said, well, our marriage counselor um, told us to do it. And he mentioned a marriage counselor who I happen to know, not well, but I know her. She has been divorced three times. She's a divorced lady now. She's been married three times and divorced three times. I said to him, you're telling me that a woman has failed at marriage not once, not twice, but three times is guiding you on how to hold your marriage together? And he had the good grace to smile abashedly because that is, frankly, ridiculous. Now, somebody say, well, come on, you know, are you saying that a, a divorced person can't uh, teach geometry? No, you know I'm not saying that. But there's a very big difference between geometry and marriage. So um, that really does matter. Uh, One of the big things about marriage, and again, I know that this makes me sound uh, a little sexist and a little ancient, but that's okay because I'm speaking about things that don't change. And one of the aspects of ancient Jewish wisdom that I tell you about repeatedly is that the more that things change, the more we need to depend on those things that never change. And one of the things that never changes is that a man and a woman who marry are not becoming socioeconomic roommates. A marriage is something very different. You're not trying to live identical lives as if you mirror images of each other. You're not trying to both bring exactly the same energy to the tray table and trying to share everything down the line just as though there are no differences between you. That's not a marriage. You've got to understand that. And um, oh, gosh, we come now to a very important thing. And that is a lot of people today get married and maintain completely separate finances. One of the things they do is uh, they draft a prenup. What's a prenup? A prenup is a contract that a lawyer draws up for you before you get married that says exactly how finances will be divvied up if you get divorced. Well, now, prenups have a very useful purpose. Very often second marriages, when their children, both the husband and the wife have children from earlier marriages and uh, there is a financial disparity perhaps or there's going to be a financial disparity, uh, each one might want to placate their own children and their own families knowing that there's a prenup that already lays lays out how things will work. But ordinarily, when a young couple get married for the first time, uh, I am very uncomfortable with a prenup, and I'll I'll tell you why. It's a little bit like riding a motorcycle. Uh, The motorcycle tends to go where your eyes go. And so you've gotta be looking, if you're on a curve and you're leaning into the curve and you're sailing around the curve, then don't be looking at the road in front of your front tire. Don't be looking at the drop-off into the canyon just off the side. Look at the end of the curve. That's what your eyes should be on. Because when you go into a marriage and you are designing the legal instruments for when you get divorced, it increases the likelihood of that very outcome clear and so uh uh, the the thing is that marriage and money are very very closely linked and as difficult as it is and particularly uh, with younger people today and i i get the challenge The tendency is, let's just keep our own money, we'll each keep our money separate. We'll each put in something every month towards the rent and the housekeeping, etc. It's a bit of a problem. No, it's more than a bit of a problem. It's a real problem. Yeah, that's right. Sharing a bank account is just as important as sharing a bed. And now to the most important part, I think, of uh, today's show um, is dealing with the question of how do I know if she is the one? And the answer is, and this is, uh, is very, very important and also very shocking, there is no such thing as the one. There just isn't. The fact is, gentlemen, Male happy warriors, single male happy warriors looking to be married. The truth is, you could marry any one of 500 different women and have a wonderful life. Because the success of your marriage depends maybe 1% on who you pick and 99% on how you, sir, conduct your marriage. Not what she does, what you do. That is the burden and privilege of being a man. I could not be more emphatic about this. It doesn't matter who you choose. Correction, let's, let's, let's just give some caveats there. It has to be a woman for whom you feel physical attraction. It has to be a woman who shares your set of values, what's important in life, how you feel about money, how you treat family, religion. And that usually, if religion is there, it usually covers all of that. Um, She needs to share your mission. And that's right, before you get married, you should have a mission what I was talking about earlier in my own personal experience is a sense of mission, my, my path in life, what I was trying to accomplish, what I wanted to do, not for the next 50 years, but certainly for the next few years, what I'm the, my next milepost, what I'm trying to achieve, what my mission is. Don't date a woman seriously. Don't even begin the process of choosing a wife until you have a mission. She has to be feminine, she, which, by which I mean to say she has to be the opposite of aggressive, call it agreeable, if you like, likable. And, um, and finally, she needs to respect you. Now, if she doesn't, that's not necessarily a flaw in her. It may be a flaw in you because part of of being respe- respected is having a mission. So you've got to get all that stuff lined up. You've got to know where you're headed. Your your finances have to be on a path. Your fitness has to be on a path. Don't, don't date before that. It's a waste of time and money. You're also wasting a girl's time. Don't do it. You've got to make sure that to some extent you're on a path in terms of your mission, in terms of your finances, in terms of, of your fitness. You've got to gotta be in good shape in, in a number of areas. And then you go ahead and find a woman. Choose a woman who is attractive to you and who will share your values. And she's got to have a clear picture of what they are. That means you've got to have a clear picture of what they are. She's got to be excited about wanting to be part of your mission and she needs to be feminine meaning agreeable and she needs to respect you those those are important things those things said in other words if we have a hundred women who would fit those parameters right how many women are there in within a hundred miles of where you live if you're a single happy warrior How many women are there within 100 miles of where you live who could fit those requirements? Would you agree 100? For sure, right? Well, you could marry any one of those 100. It doesn't matter. In other words, stop thinking that choosing a wife is the biggest gamble of your life. It isn't. Stop thinking that your whole future depends on who you choose. It doesn't. It depends on how you conduct your marriage, and I use the word conduct in the same way that the conductor of an orchestra conducts because part of the burden and privilege of being a man is you lead your marriage, and I will tell you this as a rabbi who has had a great deal of experience in marriage work. I'll tell you this, that in the overwhelming majority of cases, I can't put an exact number on it, but if you force me, I'd say over 80%, well over 80%. Um, when there are marriage problems, I can basically send the wife home and and just work on helping the man improve and get right. Because to a large extent, a wife will grow to be a reflection of you in many, many ways. And so if you are radiating less than what you should be, don't be surprised if you're not happy with the way your wife develops and grows. And that's an important thing to understand. Marriage is the greatest graduate school in the world. Marriage makes you grow. Marriage makes you change. Marriage makes you develop, both of you of course. And so the idea that in five years into a marriage, you're going to be the same person you are now, is absurd. You won't be. You'll think differently. You'll see. It, It will be very different. And again, anybody who is in a good marriage will tell you what I've just told you. Absolutely the case. But above all, perhaps the most important thing to understand is you can go ahead and choose a wife. If, if, if your ducks are lined up and you're ready to get married, you can go ahead and choose a wife, a high-quality wife, out of any one of 100 women. Pick one. It just doesn't matter that much because the direction of your life and your happiness and your fulfillment will end up being pretty much the same in all cases. You know, there's sometimes unforeseens. God forbid somebody has an unforeseen disease or something. Fine. I mean, yeah, life throws curveballs. We're not talking about that right now. But generally in the normal course of life, it doesn't matter. What you need to know is not how to choose a woman. What you need to know is how to run a marriage, how to conduct a marriage after you've chosen her. That's the key thing. And so that is uh, the main message for happy warriors today. And um, that's for male happy warriors. Um, choosing a wife, that's what this is all about. And so uh, just please know that, uh, that your plan to marry a high-quality woman doesn't end when you get married. That's when it begins. Because the extent to which a woman becomes a high-quality woman is to a large extent dependent on the man she's married to. That's you. Tremendous responsibility resting on those shoulders of yours, happy warrior. But in growing into those burdens, you will become a bigger and a better man. Understand what lies ahead. And how you can build an ark for yourself that will protect you, your family, your finances, your faith, your fitness. All of that in the uh, video teaching, the video program I told you about before. Go to my website, rabbidaniellappin.com. And uh, there you will be able to uh, download a copy of The Gathering Storm, Decoding the Secrets of Noah. Not only useful for making decisions in tough times that uh, we're all, I think, seeing on the horizon, but also a really good way to begin to grab a hold of the Bible in an utterly revolutionary and new way, a way in which it serves not as an ancient book, not just as a guide to faith, but as a guide to faith and family and finances, and fitness, and friendships, all of those. And so, with my very best greetings, until we are together next time, I am your rabbi, Rabbi Daniel Lappin. Have a wonderful week. God bless.